I'm Frank Gallagher, host of Soundman Confidential. It's showtime. Plug in. In 1978, I was living in Tina Weymouth in Chris Francis' loft in New York City, sometimes asking myself, how did I get here? Tongheads were about to record their brilliant third album, Fear of Music. I'd see the singer, David Byrne, sitting in the kitchen, scribbling lyrics and recording them into a cassette recorder. You're going to want to stick around for this one, David Byrne and Soundman Confidential. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? Fabulous, David. You're calling me from New York and you're right on time. I like that. <laughs> uh, 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 what did you get? The Timex endorsement? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, uh, I, I work with a lot of bands that could use the Timex endorsement. You know? Uh, I know what you mean, yes. There's some in uh, the musicians I've been working with now that just... Yeah, yeah, or have, habitually late. But. Have, have a watch. I don't understand that. If you've got one thing to do, anyway. And, There's and construction the, and, going on outside my apartment. Well, and, uh, for funny, a week now. Funny if, you should you say hear that. a lot of noise. It's funny you should say that, because <laughs> they've started construction on my street. They're putting a new sewer line in for the whole avenue, so... Uh, here in San Francisco, but but uh, I've told them to keep quiet till till after I talk to you. <laughs> so, you and I go back to 1977, when um when uh, I, I was the the sound uh, the sound guy for the Ramones Talking Heads European tour, and somebody said to me, "How did you get the job with Talking Heads?" I said, "I didn't get the job with Talking Heads. I just walked in and I kept following them, and they didn't tell me to go away." So. I said, I said, it's not the kind of job you fill out an application for. I'd been off the road for two years and, and uh, doing this restaurant thing in London, and uh, that was my first job back was this tour uh, as the, the, the tech for the sound company. But I'd never really... I'd heard about the Ramones. I'd heard nothing about Talking Heads. At that point, yeah, I think you had one single out as an import in, in England. And uh, so it was all brand new to me, but see... When the Ramones walked in, and and uh, I thought, what am I in for here? For uh, for a few weeks, Dee Dee with a stab wound in his ass from from a, a couple of days previously. Apparently, his girlfriend didn't want him to go to London. So we were used to you walk into a club and play, and whoever's at the soundboard is an employee of the club sometimes, and uh, and that's just that's what you get. And right. And uh, sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes they they focus on their job, and sometimes they're maybe thinking about something else. <laughs> and, yes. and we realized, yes, uh, yes, when you joined that tour, um, that oh, here's somebody who's actually making us sound pretty good. Uh, we're getting good feedback. We're hearing good things about it, and it really does make a difference. Um, so it kind of made us realize that this is really something to consider and something that we had to kind of think of as, well, we have to, how we, how are we going to continue to do this? Yeah. Do we have to go back? Do, you, do we have to go back to being at the mercy of whoever, yeah, whoever's sitting around in a club that night when we come in? Well, we barely got a sound check that night in Zurich. 
because the, everything ran late. I believe your flights were like 12 hours late or something. So, um, so the, the, I got half a song from you guys. I didn't even know your names. And then off we went to a sold-out show, and uh, that's, that kicked it off. And then after that, I, as soon as I heard uh, Cycle Killer, I was hooked. I said, oh, there's something daft going on here. It looks like my kind of thing. And also, I don't remember back then, but I spoke Scottish to you and you understood me. And Because uh, at that point, I didn't know that you had been born in Dumbarton. Oh, I see. And and uh, I, I would say Scottish words and you would laugh, like, glake it. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and then when I, when I met your parents, I understood why you could understand me. I remember growing up, the other kids and... In my neighborhood and in school, they couldn't understand my parents. It's <laughs> true. God love them. And my, my, and my mother used to say, we're speaking English and we're speaking better than you are. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> well, 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 people used to say, gee, I really love your accent. I said... What accent? I said, I don't have an accent. You've got an accent. Everybody talks like, everybody talks like this where I'm from, you know, so... Yeah. So we we had we had a little a little common a little common bond there. Um, so so that tour was went all over Europe, and we had some we had some really nice times. We had some really nice meals. We had some interesting trips. Um, and uh, on that little bus, there was a little bus that the, that everybody had to share, and there were no bunks in it. It was a it was like a day trip bus. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and I remember one time, too, we were going into Scotland and I had the Ramones hold their passports up as we crossed the border. And that was a good one, you know. I said, we're not, <laughs> we're not stopping. Just hold your passport up as we cross the border into Scotland. <laughs> and they did it. They did it. <laughs> and so I came to America and then I and then playing the club circuit and then New York was the first time I'd been to America was when I came there to see you guys, meet you guys. And... Uh, and then eventually I stayed. I think I, I came to do a couple of shows at the Intermedia or something, and uh, then then I, uh, I, I, I just didn't go back. I just stayed there. That worked out really well for us, yeah. It worked out, it worked out great. And, and, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a ball with, with... Talking Heads opened a lot of doors for us in, in Manhattan, you know. I, I could go to a club, and as you know, we'd go to clubs and be treated as VIPs. Even though, mm-hmm. even though at that point uh, we were just mooching, you know, <laughs> just yeah. free drinks and uh, and, a, and free admission, and it was it was wasn't a bad wasn't a bad thing. So so, I had never experienced loft, loft living in London or loft anything in London, and then so getting to New York, and then you you guys rehearsed in that loft in Long Island City. Yeah, there was a little corner set up, and uh, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, there was this whole. Uh, New York, Manhattan, even parts parts of Manhattan were kind of manufacturing centers for a long time, and so you had all these small factories um, that had been that gradually were being abandoned. Artists were taking them over, and musicians they were great places to rehearse. And if you were an artist, you could do big big paintings or whatever, and you didn't weren't were, you know, confined to a small apartment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 
Chris and Tina had that place, and I think Jerry had a place upstairs from them or next yeah, door yeah, or something Je- like yeah, that. Yeah, Jerry was upstairs, I think, and Don Cherry was upstairs as well on the other side. Jerry yeah. was on the other side. And then Tina's brother, Jan Weymouth, had an architectural company there. And Ernie Brooks also from the Modern That's Lovers. Right. From the, yes, uh, yes. Uh, he, he it was a nice little scene. It was a nice little scene and. There was nobody living around there, so it the noise didn't bother anyone. No, it was um, it, it was great, and unlike unlike the sirens going by now. The, the, <laughs> but I remember too um, a couple of things that the, the 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 South Bank show came to film that little snippet that they did, a little half hour show they did, and we 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 manufactured a gig at the Mud Club just to give them something to shoot. This was when we were way past play, a, playing the mud club or being uh, you know or playing small clubs but uh, they, they shot some stuff in the loft and, uh, and that was that was uh, a, a, a revelation to me as well but the, the main thing with the loft was uh, the, the, that, the tracks for that fear of music record um, basically pulled a snake up through the window plugged a few microphones in and we were rolling tape within an hour yeah, it was a really uh, smart idea, Brian Eno's, that they, because the problem with a lot of uh, bands going into the studio when they were just getting started was that they, you know, they they were comfortable playing live or in rehearsal. Yeah. But in the kind of dead space of a recording studio, it can all sort of fall apart. They they're not used to. It becomes harder to play together. If you're not used to that, and yeah. we we weren't at that point, so it was very smart to kind of let us be in in our comfort zone, in our acoustic comfort zone, and where we were rehearsing, and just bring the studio to us instead of us going to the studio. Very and, uh, very smart. Yeah, that was very clever. And, and the thing is, too, uh, the recording studio it, it can get sterile as well. It's not organic. It's 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 when you know, when when you guys rehearsed there, that big red shagpile carpet had a sound of its own, that corner of the room, and you were comfortable with that, and it was easy, you know, to yeah. to, to to get to, to get comfortable and 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 just let it just let it be natural, which uh, and it's and it was live. It was most of that record was was done live. There was very little messing with it after the fact. You know, few yeah, there was uh, yeah, you know, added effects. We added did some overdubbing, but uh, yeah, a lot of this, certainly all the basic stuff was all live. We didn't record any vocals there. No, um, I think you did a guide vocal. I think you did. I had a fifty-eight up there for you singing in a wee guide vocal. I might some, have on some stuff, some, but was, we knew there was going to be a, because it was not a kind of sterile studio environment right. so there's going to be a lot of leakage right so we we had to be had to uh, assume that a lot of what we were doing was going to be keepers right. that we couldn't we couldn't go back and fix everything yeah. the way you can in a studio right um, when, when everything is isolated so which ended up being fine but there were four cases where we got uh, we'd evolved as did a lot of the other bands uh from playing live, from just gigging as much as we possibly could. Um, we would do, play a whole weekend at CBGB's and then do what other, any other dates we could do. 
at other clubs or in New Jersey or Boston or whatever during the week. And uh, you get to be pretty tight as a band, unless you, you know, unless you're messed up on something else. Yes. But you get to be pretty, pretty tight as a band. And all the fixing and all the studio stuff that people are used to now, it's not as necessary because you're actually playing really, playing really well together. And you kind of anticipate, there's little things like you anticipate when when you're going into a, a new section and the drummer does a fill or the this happens or that happens and there's a little bit of kind of give or take. And I, uh, I think it kind of really shows. Oh, I, 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 I saw a difference from the start of the European tour to the end of the European tour. I saw the songs and the, the playing evolving and getting... You know, it's not even a case of tight. It was just, it was just intuitive that, that everybody knew, and, and the song started growing as well. That's another point. Is when, when as a sound guy, when when a band has a, a, a new record coming out. Well, Fear of Music. I was in the room when those tracks were, were laid down, so I, I I got the basics of the song. I, I kind of had an idea of the texture of the songs. Buildings and food, not so much. Cause I only have that when. When it when it arrived, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. and and I had to learn the textures of the new songs. But you actually, uh, as a sound guy, you go if you work with a new artist, you say, well, what are you looking for from me out there, texture wise, or this that dynamics? Well, what are you looking for? I mean, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. But I gave you the courtesy of, and I said to you, what what are you looking for from me out there? And you said to me, don't get bored. And that was the smartest thing anybody's ever said. That's the smartest thing any artist ever said to me. Don't get bored out there, you know. Uh, it's, it's true. I don't know if you remember telling me that. Maybe, maybe you. It was it was your sense of humour, but I took it I took it to heart, and I thought that's that's very smart because that'll keep me fresh and interested, you know. But but getting the uh, the buildings and food record to learn the songs and to learn the text, and not just picking out parts or feature whatever's whatever's there, you know. That four piece, the Talking Heads four piece, was a dream to mix because there was lots of space for me. There was a lot of air there for me to play with, you know. Yeah, I remember we were um, we weren't that loud on stage. No, you weren't. I'm even less loud now, but, but uh, <laughs> we weren't that loud. So that so and, and that you weren't like fighting the volume of the instruments or the amps to get the vocal above the amps or that kind of thing. Yes, and we tended we tended to go for pretty clean sounds, which was um, maybe a little bit unusual at the time. Aye. So there was not a lot of kind of distortion and overdriven amps and things like that. Now and then, but not that much. No. Uh, which I guess means that there's a little bit more space, acoustic space yeah, for you to balance things and get a decent mix. Aye. Uh, it, it made it easy for me, but but I took full credit for it. Not the, uh, I didn't give any credit to the band. It was all, it was all about, <laughs> fine. It was all about me. Now the other thing too is is I you, you, I was the first guy who t told you how how to use monitors because because we only had vocals in the monitors, even for the drummer. That was all we had, and that was another reason that the the stage sound was was clean. Now you get guys. There's twelve mixes. There's fourteen wedges. With the in ear thing, it's a little different. But back then, you guys worked and got the same sound uh, that you did in rehearsal on the stage because you, your amps were your monitors. You know those JC one twenties, and they were clean amplifiers. They were a, they had a distinctive sound. Those those rolling amps. You know, uh, 
I remember that. And but it got a little dirtier when Baloo came in and, and started with all his pedals and everything. But but uh, the the nine, and the transition from the four piece to the nine piece was was uh, quite a, quite uh, quite something. Yeah, that was a. Big jump. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and big, big jump. I, I was just thinking back then, I got told there's a rehearsal at Brit Row. I didn't get told there was going to be a bass player and Adrian Ballou and Nona Hendricks, and nobody told me anything. I just showed up and, and I went, oh, I, I suppose I better get to work here and put this together, <laughs> you know. But that was a dream too, Bernie Worrell and, and, uh, and Ballou and everybody else, and getting those textures, two bass players. I mean, it was it was revolutionary, Steve Scales, revolutionary. I remember, yes. I, I think, uh, I think we'll call Jerry and Bernie did a lot of the arranging for live, like deciding, okay, you're going to play this, you're going to play this part, who's going to play this part and this part. Uh, there, was bits of, there was bits of jamming and grooving, but there was, a lot of it was pretty worked out. It's like, who plays what, where, and when? Yeah. Um, otherwise, that could have easily turned into a complete mess. Yeah. I went to see your show in New York. Um, uh, it's a different animal from what I was used to. Uh, apparently, there's eighty channels of wireless involved, at least. Uh, it's, yeah, so it's, it's. I mean, even from for all the time that's gone by and all the various developments have been, this is like a bit over the top with some of that stuff. It was like really pushing the envelope of what what you could do. Yeah, in a confined space with all that RF flying around. You know? Oh, my God, yes. And you can imagine that in the, there's an RF coming from all the theaters nearby as well. Let's talk about, about uh, some young bands these days. And I find it very sad that a lot of these kids are never going to get a chance to play and experience and do what we did back in that, in that time. Everybody's got a recording studio on their laptop now, so they're sitting in a basement eating Cheetos, and and uh, but with nobody to bounce the ideas off. I mean, they put it out in the, the on the internet and, and and stuff like that. But I mean, how do you see that young people getting getting? It's, I know it's a different it's a different world and it's a different thing, but I, the personal aspect and the human aspect of music I find has been been kind of dissipated now. I see it in a way from two sides. Um, the good side is that musicians and songwriters and whatever, they can make, they can record their record as they see fit and as they imagine it. And, and uh, they don't have some producer coming in and saying, oh, no, that's not the way you do it or that's not the way that should sound or we have to make you sound more commercial or we have to make you sound more that, more like mm. so-and-so or whatever. You all those decisions are now in your own hands, which is really kind of revolutionary that over decades, the kind of that power, if, if, if the musician wanted it, kind of moved over to them, that they can make a recording be more or less the way they want it to be. The other subject, what you're saying is, is also true, that it means that uh, they become, some of them anyway, become recording artists as opposed to performing artists, which means that <laughs> they might be very good recording artists, but it's a very different kettle of fish. Getting up on stage, performing live with other musicians, if you're not just playing the tracks, yeah, that's a whole other thing. And the music that comes out of that, come, coming out of performance, is sometimes different than what you kind of come up with in a recording studio or on a laptop. Um, 
it has a different kind of feel, a different kind of push and pull to it. And yeah, but you need, yes, you need places where that can happen and, and an audience that's willing to, willing to watch uh, a kind of their neighborhood band evolve in some ways, um, which is kind of an advantage we had that there were, there's still, well, after the pandemic, who knows what's going to be left. But there, uh, bef- yeah, before that, yeah, before that, there were quite, there were clubs in Brooklyn and not as many in Manhattan, but uh, yes, there were some in Brooklyn. Uh, it, was, it was getting, and I know in London, they've, the club scene has been decimated over the last decade. It's not just in the last few months. It's been a long process, which means that, yeah, the acts don't have anywhere to kind of hone that craft, the craft of performing and the craft of playing with other musicians. They're kind of, somebody gets, um, you know, because they can, they make maybe a great recording and then they're kind of, Cost on stage doing kind of showcases for industry and press people and this and that, and they have no idea how to do that. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of, it's very unfair to them. Some of them are lucky and they can do it, but, um, but others uh, haven't had any time to hone those skills. And it's a, it is a completely different set of skills. And they, yeah, so they're kind of, uh, at sea, they're just kind of like, what do I do now? How do I do this? And a lot of them, you, you can tell that they think, well, I'll do, I'll do what I've seen other people do. Yeah. And you end up with something, you know, pretty, uh, that the, the music might be really original, but sometimes the performing style seems like, oh, they're just kind of imitating something they've seen. Um, but some, some people escape that, but it's, uh, it's a bit of a hill to climb these days. Yes. Yeah, I've been to, I've been to clubs where I've heard, say, somebody's first record, and I love it, and I'll go to the club, and they can't pull it off. They, they're, <laughs> they're on stage, and as you can tell, to them, it's like, uh, what do I do up here? Yeah. yeah. How do I act? How do I look? How do I move? How do I relate to the audience in front of me? They're used to being, say the laptop or, or in a recording studio and I could go, whoa, okay. <laughs> you need to go, you know, woodshed this somewhere, somewhere, <laughs> some little club out in the, out in the middle of nowhere. And so where you can kind of make all your mistakes and then come back when you're a little bit ready. Yeah. I, I worked with a, I was working with a young, a young artist helping him out, getting up. And I said, well, you're going to have to get in a van. He said, what do you mean? I said, you're going to have to get in a van and get out there and learn your skill, learn stagecraft. I said, your songs are all right, but you, 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 don't have, you don't have any stage presence. You don't know how to do this. You don't know how to talk between songs. You don't know how to pace a set. You don't know. I said, that's stuff you have to learn, get in a van and go out there. I said, I ain't getting in a van. So <laughs> I said, okay, that's where, at least I know what I'm dealing with here. Yeah, I'm not getting in a yeah, van. We, we loved getting in a van back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was not not always a lot of fun, but it was it was fun being the little tribe, the little team that was gonna we're gonna go to the next town and we're gonna uh, uh, exactly we get to we get to play again. We get to play again. Yeah, 
Uh, happy yeah. to do so. Uh, the, the other thing, too, was uh, that, that, that I've always remembered was we were doing missionary work back then. We were going to places that nobody else was going, you know, with a bit of college, oh, yeah. a bit of college radio, and we would go and we would, make, we would make friends everywhere we went. And that's how Talking Heads got to where they were going because we went, we did the miles and we went and played those shows. Remember, we would work seven nights a week. You know, nobody does mm-hmm. nobody does that anymore. It was daft, but we did it. It was. Uh, I don't know if I. I, I don't know if I recommend that every no. young act do seven nights a week, but yeah, five at least. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, you. Yeah. We're working. I mean, I can still. I can still do five. Uh, at least when we're parked in the same theater or something. Yes. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there are acts. To be fair, there are acts. That, do go out and get the bands and go out and do it. And some of them are, are really good and yeah. they become, or they become really good. And they, uh, some of them don't really understand why they have to do that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> they feel like they've made the record. They've written the songs or whatever. And it's like, my job's done. Why do I have to now do this part? Um, I remember, uh, Yes, back in those days, the live shows were, were were viewed as a kind of a promotional tool. Right. Um, the record companies saw it as a kind of lost leader. Like, you might not make a lot of money, you might even lose money playing your gigs, but it's going to help you sell records, and you make money on the records. Yeah. In those days, you, well, maybe not every band and not everyone, all the time, but you could you could kind of make uh, a bit of a living selling records. That's a lot harder to do now with streaming. Um, oh, oh but, yes, oh yes, yeah. So now it uh, a lot of acts are being forced to play live because that's where the income is. It's the only revenue stream. Um, it's the only revenue stream for them. Yeah, much. yeah. You know, if you've got X number of people in there, you've got that many dollars in your pocket. So a lot of acts who yeah, may have done incredible recordings on a laptop are now, and yet they kind of have to get out there. Yeah. Because uh, unless they can get a song in a, in a commercial or a TV show or something like that. So what, what's, uh, what's, what's the uh, future hold for you? Are you, you going to go back and do your, some more Broadway? If, uh, if that can open up, so far we're... Don't know when that's going to happen, but we're we're we felt like we weren't finished. Um, the shows were all selling out, so yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah, felt yeah. like we felt like as an audience there, we can uh, keep doing this. And now we want to we're trying to figure out if we can go back, if we can somehow make the other thing a little more inclusive and uh, fair. Broadway prices are kind of what they are; they're very they're really high. Yes. Um, and, so, and so you get, that kind of defines what your audience is. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you can't do 100% it. For, yeah, you're not going to get a lot of kids up there. You get some of them, they're up in the gods, they're up on the balcony. Yeah. And they've saved up because they hear it's a great show. But it's a little bit unfair, the pricing. And I, I think it's... Uh, Maybe this, this whole pandemic thing might be an opportunity for Broadway to kind of rethink 
they're pricing it, they want to get people on seats again. They got to make it a little more equitable in that way. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's what that's what we're looking at. Um, I mean, I'm doing other things. I'm working with a choreographer, trying to imagine a kind of. Uh, a, I think we're the audience all dances together, but they're socially distant. <laughs> so they're all. <laughs> A bit like Scotland, a bit like Scotland. Yes. <laughs> so they're all six foot apart, but they're all kind of dancing like, together. So we're trying to figure that out. Like um, a, I think I think it's the social distancing thing has to go away next year. People have to. It's it. It's not natural to be that far apart from other people. Oh, it's really hard. Yes, it's, it's really very, hard. It's very tough. It's very tough. So, do you go back to Scotland much? On when I'm on tour, uh, yeah, that's about it. When I'm on tour, I'll kind of arrange to have a day off. Um, we played a, we played there twice the last tour. Uh, I remember we played Glasgow twice, right. and um, I think it was the second. Uh, no, I think it was the first time we played. When it was when the art school burned down for the second oh, time. Oh my goodness, that was terrible. So we're all riding back. We're riding back from the gig. We played, you know, some posh, a very fancy hall, uh, right in the center of town, and we're riding back to our hotel on our bicycles, <laughs> <laughs> and we see flames leaping up into the sky. Yeah, very sad. Yeah, yeah. They're rebuilding. Sad. They're rebuilding. I so I see. It's a lot of re- it's a lot to be rebuilt. Oh it's a my lot goodness! Yeah, yeah. Glasgow, Glasgow's Glasgow's changed a lot. I love I love going back. It is, but it's really. I mean, when I would go back and visit my grandparents uh, when I was a child, I remember it being black. Oh, it was just the buildings were covered sooty. in soot. Yeah, yes, yeah. and the, the poverty and everything was just unbelievable. Um, I, I, you know, as a child, I was just like in shock. Yeah. Of course, I was happy to see my, you know, grandparents and uh, go to the park and play with a little boat and do whatever the child does. But yeah, it was very, it's really changed a lot. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful city. There's some parts of it. I, I go back and visit my sister who lives uh, in, in, in a little village called Banknock uh, between Glasgow and Stirling. And, uh, but I, I go visit Jim Kerr uh, f- from, uh, from Simple Minds, a singer uh, who I worked with as well. But, uh, and he takes me, he showed me parts of Glasgow I never knew existed. You know, beautiful parks, beautiful architecture, cleaned up. It's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful old city. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I don't see young A&R guys these days with any sort of historical point of reference when they're listening to music. A good pop song's a good pop song. Doesn't matter when it was written. Yeah, I think the, the for the for the recording companies, their their job now seems to be more about marketing than it is about. Shepherding the, the creative process. That's more down to the producers and the arrangers and everybody else is involved on the records now. Oh, um, which takes me to Auto Tune, which is now apparently 
which is now apparently an instrument. You hear them using this thing as an instrument. It was something yeah, that was... Yeah, it's right. Oh, it was God. hidden, yeah. For oh. a long time, it was to be hidden. Exactly, exactly. Well, hide like, that. Yeah. No, it's not... Hide that. Oh, my... Don't let anybody know that you're using this, this yeah. thing because you can't sing in tune. <laughs> and now, and now it's a feature. Now it's a feature of these things. And then you, these, the, the, even with a track, they can't sing. So, that, so everything's on track. I see bands now, and everything's on track. Because I do, a, I do a lot of uh, corporate work in San Francisco with my union. I'm in the theatrical union, the one that charges so much money to see a play on Broadway. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually a member of that. So, the. Um, I see him. Every band now has a Pro Tools guy. Oh, you, really? Oh, you, it's unbelievable. There'll be 24 tracks of Pro Tools on the side of the stage and a guy running it. It's, wow, okay. There's a lot of it, David, a lot of it. And they keep it hidden because you go, there's no way that that sound is coming from those four guys on stage. And I'm not going to name names. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. <laughs> But I'm, uh-huh. I'm on the side of the stage and I'm looking at the guy and I'm going, there's no way that laddie's doing that. There's no way he could be doing and playing that, you know. It's not, and, yeah. then, and then you go, it's a track. I mean, their vocals, the guitar, everything, everything. The whole show's on track. And they're up there, maybe now and again he'll play a solo or between songs the, the mic will be hot and he'll say, thank you very much, you know. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> As soon as he starts singing, the, as soon as he starts singing, the mic's on mute, you know. Yeah, and you know, uh, I mean, I have to wonder what that does to audience expectations. If the audience yeah. then goes to a gig and they expect everything to sound like the record, perfect. yeah, you're exactly like the record, yeah, uncannily like the record. <laughs> you know, if, if and, <laughs> it's uncannily, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, but you got to wonder whether uh, an audience might actually enjoy a kind of uh, less perfect sound. Yeah, organic. If it felt, yeah, Yeah. if it felt more real to them, um, it gives them a reason to see a live performance. Yeah, because you're going to get you get something with maybe that has more. A little sloppier, more accidents, but actually has a little bit more real feeling in it. I get the guy Chris Hughes, who, who produced uh, Tears, Tears for Fears. He said every he said all of my work is riddled with errors. It's the audience's job to find them. And I <laughs> and I and I have to agree with him. You know, uh, they're not even mistakes. They're just they're, it's the human condition, and that's why I like I like live bands, and I, and it's it's why yourself and Talking Heads and and the B fifty twos, all those bands that play live and still play live, and the B fifty twos, I must say, that we've got some uh, about six little tracks, but it's mainly just loops and hand claps and stuff that that I, I sit in under the mix. They are real. They, those girls mm-hmm. open their mouths; they're still singing, you know. They're still, they're wow. still, they're still. Yeah. I mean, and they're still delivering. It's night after night. It's 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 staggering, really, to to keep. Mm-hmm. That, and that's but that's real. That's authentic. And 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 I and I I, I think uh, seeing your Broadway show after having a relationship myself, sonic relationship with some of those songs, 
It was very interesting. I would like to get my hands on and do the mix for that for you, by the way. I could I could bring a different perspective. Uh-huh. Aye, I could I could I'm, I've gotten quite good at it over the years. And the fact that, <laughs> and the fact that I stopped drinking many years ago makes it a little bit more consistent as well. Uh-huh. You, you know. <laughs> Well, Davy, your time's about up here. You've, you've got another job to do. Thanks very much for for uh, for doing this. And when I get back to New York, I'll buy you dinner. Okay, great, great. All right, Larry. You. Thanks very much. Good talking to you. Good talking to you, David. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks very much for plugging in. We can't do it without you. And don't forget to check out our website soundmanconfidential.com for news and my upcoming shows and all the fabulous guests you're going to have the pleasure of listening to. Catch you next time. Soundman Confidential is produced by Alan Black with our team Chip Bentley on sound production, web design Addie Bell, original music Paul Westwater and public relations Paddy DeVries at Devious Planet Media. <laughs>